Marini's Media. Totally Football Show. Bank holiday weekend here, and in South Korea, sun was shining and parks were busy too, and so were the Lee Dongs and the Dong Yangs as the K-League returned. What happened? We've got all the news for you. Meanwhile, positive results are the last thing you want when you're trying to get your league back up and running. We'll hear how the player testing is impacting on the Bundesliga and Premier League plans. And our Premier League retrospective reaches the 96-97 season. You'll never guess who won this one. It's all in the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hello, listener. All right. I'm here with another Totally Football show and one that features, excitingly, Daniel Story. Hi, James. Hi, Daniel. Also, James Horncastle. Good day to you. Yeah, good day. You're wearing some fancy knitwear from your Cotswold HQ. And also here, and in the words of Cube, He busy with Korean sh- Matt Davis Adams. <laughs> Hi, James. Hi, Matt. Wow. Hey, big weekend in Korea, no? Do you mean North Korea, James, or South Korea? Because, um, you know, the, the, the first secretary of the Workers' Party is back, um, you know, after a lot of speculation about whether he, he had passed away in mysterious circumstances. He's, he's on the scene again. All right. Good bit of context there. It was actually South Korea. Uh, I was referring to with the return of the K-League, a season that, as you know, because you were listening to Thursday's show, was due to start at the end of February, but kicked off this weekend. Excessive goal celebrations were banned. Teams came out onto the pitch separately. Players were encouraged not to talk too much to each other or the referee. And, of course, there were no supporters in the stadiums, but they did pipe in crowd noises with a bit of K-pop to get us underway. Ring-ding-a-dong, Matt. Tell us about the weekend. All 1,100 K-League players and staff tested negative for coronavirus before the round began. Um, season's been truncated somewhat from, from 38 to 27 rounds and it kicked off on Friday and we could watch it live in the UK. That's brilliant, isn't it? Defending champions on Friday, Chumbut Motors taking on Suwon Blue Wings, who'd won the cup last time around. How did that go? Yeah, Chumbuk, the um, the big team in the K-League in recent seasons. They've won the title in five of the last six seasons. Uh, they won here too. Managed by Jose Marais, who some people might be familiar with, one of Jose Mourinho's old assistants. He also was manager of Barnsley for, for all of 15 games a couple of seasons ago. He's the only non-South Korean coach in the league. Right. Uh, Nick Miller rang him up actually uh, yesterday for a little interview about how it all went, which you can find on the thetotallyfootballshow.com. Uh, Back to you, Matt. Nice, yeah. Well, uh, Marisa, a, a happy chap. His team got the uh, got the W on Friday thanks to a late winner from 41-year-old Lee Dong-gook. Uh, that is the very same chap who had two seasons at Middlesbrough from, from 06 to 08. I'm sure we all recall with fondness his goals against the towns of Northampton and Mansfield in uh, domestic cup competitions. Uh, mm. As you say, this is this is one of those games that they piped in fake crowd noise. Didn't happen for all of them, but did for some. 
I found it curiously effective, but I was wondering, do, they, do you think they had like a soundboard so that they could reflect events on the pitch, you know, fade up the boos or fade up the gasps or the stifled yawns of ennui or whatever? That is a, a very, very good question and not one to which I have an answer, but you would hope so, wouldn't you? You certainly think as we go on with this, it will get more and more sophisticated and the soundboard will have more and more options on it rather than just cheer or boo. Brilliant. Motors up and running then. What else happened? Uh, yeah, no no signs of stalling either for All San Hyundai. <laughs> they saw off uh, Sangju Sangmu 4-0. The Brazilian junior Negrau scored... Three-point turn from the Hyundai... Sorry, right back to you. <laughs> yeah, the Brazilian junior Negrau scored twice here. Uh, he's got 41 goals in the past two K-League seasons, so he's uh, he's kind of a big deal. Is he good? Yeah, yeah. I mean, by the standard of the K-League, which is um, not particularly high I mean difficult to tell based on this round of games for obvious reasons although there was that extraordinary goal from the uh, Cho J Wands for Gang Wan this came in there 3-1 win against FC Seoul really nice little flick uh, to finish off uh, a lovely team move you can actually see all the goals uh, from the weekend on the K-League's Twitter page which is at K-League which is nice Mm. and easy to remember now, it, it was a gentle pace. I mean, this goal, it, it was a lovely goal, uh, sort of a counter-attack, but it was no great air of urgency because there's a fairly gentle pace to all these matches, for as I can tell, which is understandable in the circumstances. But the ball is then crossed in, and he does a kind of pirouette and backheel flick, which I think he meant. Yeah, it's kind of a Cruyff turn remix. I think he meant it too. We're going we're gonna to give it to him. He's, we've got that in his locker. We've known that for a while. So all let's right. Give it to him. Excellent. What of the Pohang Steelers, Matt? Uh, I'm glad you asked. Uh, they carried over their form from last season. Uh, they lost just one of the last 12 games and uh, they've carried that into the new term. They beat Busan I Park 2-0. Uh, the Serb Alexander Palasevic, uh, who loves a pen more than fabled South Korean author Han Kang, scored from the spot for the fifth time in the last 10 games. Uh, wow. Elsewhere, Yang Dong-hyun marked his Seongnam debut with both goals in his new team's 2-0 win at Gwangju. And the other game of the opening round finished goalless between Incheon and and Daegu, etc., and so on. Brilliant. But you, you know what? I, I doubt many of us at the start of the year thought we'd be here discussing K-League, but I, I, I kind of enjoyed it. Did, did you follow any of this, Daniel? Yeah, I did watch a little bit of it. Um, the crowd noise is really interesting because if you turned off the screen and just heard the audio from a, an Asian League game, you probably would be able to tell where in the world you were listening to the game from because there's this sort of constant hum of excitement that just builds as one noise rather than any obvious chanting or kind of explosion of noise except when there's a goal it's just kind of one noise that kind of goes up and down in lilting volume it's quite therapeutic actually well indeed better get used to k-league anyway because not sure how soon the other leagues are going to be getting back underway themselves plenty of players testing positive over the last few days bundesliga who are due to start next weekend in the Bundesliga Zwei, the second division, Dresden, Dinamo Dresden, announcing a third positive test for them. They'd had a couple in their first round of swabs. This was their third round of swabs, very thorough. And uh, it turned up another one, which means they can neither train nor participate in any action for the next 14 days. They're going to miss at least four matches. Bundesliga are going to be having talks starting on Monday about how they're going to respond to all this. As I say, they are meant to be starting the top two divisions again. This coming weekend in England, Brighton announced a third player testing positive, casting further doubt about 
the Premier League's ability to make Project Restart a reality. Its current format seems to be that all clubs will be playing their nine or so remaining matches at neutral venues. Three clubs at least are firmly opposed to this idea, Brighton, Watford and Aston Villa. A vote for it, which must see 14 of the 20 clubs be in favour for it to be adopted, is likely to be held later in May, Daniel. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, that's right. And it goes almost without saying that despite all these negotiations, it is that testing period that is going to prove crucial. Even if everything else works and the votes go through, you know, if we get a Dynamo Dresden and it happens to be one of the clubs that are already a little bit unsure with the plan they had, it basically kiboshes the whole thing um, because there really isn't the room if we restart in mid-June. There really isn't the room for teams to go into isolation for 14 days at least because if you know common sense dictates that if three players have tested and then are in you know in isolation, it's pretty possible that we all restart again and another team suffers exactly the same fate. Uh, I did like the idea about the Korean teams walking out separately to then tackle each other and jostle at set pieces in exactly the same way. <laughs> Canary Mark writes in on the subject of Brighton. Now that the Seagulls have found three players with the Rona, I'm waiting for my team at Norwich City to start getting the sniffles, conveniently. Can you think of any other spectacular team ruses used in the past to get out of playing a fixture? Well, there's one, of course, in the Premier League, which we're going to come on to in the course of today's season recap, and it relates to Borough, but in Italy... Well, there was a famous game between Salernitana and Nocerina, which is a derby in the south in Campania, sort of area where Naples is the uh, the capital. And I think Nocerina's fans were, well, the ultras were not allowed to travel for the game against Salernitana. And so they threatened the players, their own players, with death if they, if they went ahead with this game. And uh, the players do go ahead with this game. But what happens, James, is within 50 seconds, players start going down injured. Um, They already use their three substitutions. And then by the 21st minute, I think you've got five more injuries. And uh, the referee has has no option but to kind of suspend and forfeit the game. And uh, and that was all because the Notchurina Ultras, you know, were taking issue with the fact that they weren't able to travel and watch the game. So all right, if we can't watch the game, go. no one can watch the game. The scamps, eh? Uh, <laughs> that story and others like it, of course, featuring in our recent two-part expose of the shadowy world of ultras over on our sister podcast, Golazzo. Mm. A more tweets, FPL Doctor, and this relates again to the retro season we'll be doing a bit later. Why was Dennis Bergkamp scared of flying, says FPL Doctor, showing sort of scant medical kind of sympathy for Bergkamp's condition. <laughs> but he says, how did he make it to overseas tournaments, specifically USA 94? That's a very good question. How did Bergkamp make it to the American World Cup? Wasn't, wasn't that where the problem started? Somebody can stop me if I'm wrong, but I'm sure there was a, a connecting flight in, in the USA when the Dutch were there in 94 that was bumpy, and that was where his fear of flying came from. So it was it was kind of after USA yeah, someone, in 94 that kicked in. Someone on the plane, there was a lot of turbulence, and someone joked on the plane that there was a bomb on the plane, and Bergkamp not unreasonably suffered this panic attack, uh, which lasted for most of the flight until they landed, and it's apparently from that day he said, I'm never going to fly on a plane again. Good Lord. Ross Meachin gets in touch and says, tomorrow we're hosting a small draw for the remainder of Bundesliga with my friends. Could you give a shout out to East Renfrewshire and London Supporters Club? 
Hello, East Renfrewshire and London Supporters Club. It's an eclectic geographical combination, that one. Uh, I hope you have a great time with your draw. Also on the tweets, of course, more ads with the lads business. I think this might be the concluding instalment because Eric Cracker, Chris McKerney, Berry Bowl FC, loads of other people saying, come on. When you're talking about football adverts, it has to be Nike's Olé, Brazil versus Portugal. Set in some international match, presumably a friendly between the two, you have the two teams lined up in the tunnel when a mad soccer skills scuffle breaks out between the two sets of players with incredible consequences do you matt you you didn't remember this one but you just watched it now your reaction uh yeah enjoyed it i mean very young cristiano ronaldo some some pretty beefy challenges going in and the obligatory nike advert superfluous appearance from eric Cantona. so yeah a lot of boxes yeah. nice lots of lovely cameos in here although james there's one that you missed yeah, I mean, the referee, he goes in for a sliding tackle. It's, it looks like it's just a no-name extra when really it, it should have been someone like Byron Moreno. Or, I mean, right. for a challenge like that, for someone who's disrupting and potentially ruining a game of this magnitude, it can be no other person. Uh, but also I great think one supporting... English referee who would have been perfect for that. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh, James. But in terms of um, best supporting actor, it's got to be Gene Hackman lookalike, Big Phil Scolari, sort of in yeah. the tunnel, like, what is going on here? Excellent, yeah. excellent acting chops from Hackman. All right. <laughs> well, it's, it's a, it is a great ad, and many thanks to uh, Eric and Chris and, and Barry for, for uh, and everybody Make else. Make some more, Nike. Make some more. It's yeah, why, so that, that whole genre of basically wheeling out a platoon of top stars that were better than your top stars and saying, buy our boots, that, that's completely gone now. Why, why is that? They tend to do them now for World Cups, I think. Um, they're a sort of sell our boots at the World Cup. I suppose the answer is that Adidas and Nike have become so dominant in the market that they probably feel like they don't need to. Right. It's a shame, though. People have got mm. social media to preoccupy them now. They're too busy building their followings on Instagram and Twitter to be actually thinking that they have the time to do something actually meaningful and excellent and have a legacy of, of great adverts that podcast and talk about <laughs> for for the next, you know, six weeks. That's true. It's true. Uh, speaking of other things that podcasts are talking about for the next six weeks or so, the Intertotally Cup. Now, we're down to the semi-finals, of course, which controversially are going to be two-legged. If you weren't across the exciting uh, development on this, it's going to be home and away fixtures with our four semi-finalists answering questions on their own special subjects, but also on their opponent's special subjects. To give everyone a chance to prepare, we're having a rest day today. The semi-finals will get underway on Thursday. Thursday, when it will be Daniel facing Alvaro. I think Alvaro's Mm. playing at home. Yes, I'm brushing up on my uh, mid-noughties Real Madrid. Right. It's it's the Galactico era Madrid. And, and what are you going to be hitting him with? Uh, in an unbelievable panic, I'll be hitting him with post-war FA Cup finals. Ooh, oh, and wow. I believe that Alvaro is <laughs> seriously sweating about this one. <laughs> <laughs> Alvaro should have really gone niche for like Basque players that played for Spain or something, I don't know, like that. Instead, he's gone for Real Madrid, the most popular side of the early 2000s, which had all these superstars. What is he thinking? 
That's a lovely old wrinkle, Ad, in the um, the home and away. You've got to answer your <laughs> opponent's specialist subject, by the way. I've been critical of a lot of aspects of this quiz for obvious reasons, but but that's a nice uh, a nice little format tweak. And, and of course, away away answers count double in the event of a tie. <laughs> so there you go. It all starts on Thursday. The other semi final, of course, is. Uh, yeah, underperforming Michael Cox against Jack Lang. Not sure what to make of Michael because every time we run through, we listen to everyone else's general knowledge. He's kind of five out of five, but when he's been up on it, he's he's been kind of one or two out of five on the general knowledge. Cox is he doing an Italy eighty-two? That Paraguay side that reached was it? Did they get to the final of the Copa America or semi-finals? They they just stunk it out. That seems to be very much his yeah his his strategy here, right? Daniel, it's getting serious, yeah, isn't it, last four? It is, yeah. Uh, I was trying to think of what World Cup team people would have James Horncastle down as. It can only be the West Germans that beat Hungary, can't it? Really? I think Chile 62, probably. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. The thing is, I seem to have acted as though like a, a washing machine for Jack Lang, where I've made everything <laughs> that he does look clean now. Yep. People shouldn't forget what a filthy player Lang is as well. Mm. What's his specialist subject? Don't know. Don't know. We'll we'll find out down the road. Anyway, semi-finals return, or begin rather, on Thursday. Up next, in today's show, listener, we have for you our Premier League 1996-97 season review. I'm Jose Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Tall Swedish strikers with little ponytails, special. Winning the little jackpot on Paddy Power Games... Not special. Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com. 18 plus begumbleware.org. Hello, listener. Let's face it, there's only so many Zoom pub quizzes and family FaceTime calls a person can handle. But that's where our friends at Beer52 come in. They're here to help make staying at home more bearable. Or indeed, bearable. Beer52 want to give all of you a free case of eight craft beers. All you do is pay $5.95 for shipping. Sign up now at beer52.com football and be safe in the knowledge that each case is delivered contact-free to your door. Beer 52 are beer pioneers, working with small batch breweries from all over the world to bring you hoppy IPAs, crisp lagers and silky stouts from places like the Czech Republic, New Zealand, America and the Alps. You can choose a light, dark or mixed case and the best thing with Beer 52 is that there's no minimum commitment. If you want, you can just take this free case, try the beers and if you decide it's not for you, you can pause or cancel your subscription at any time. So, head to beer52.com football and get your first case of eight craft beers for the price of a beer in a fancy London pub. Remember them. That's the word beer and the number 52.com slash football. One last time, beer52.com slash football. On Spotify, Smart Speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Listener, it's 1996-97, a transformative time in Britain. Labour would be ending long years of Tory rule. Cool Britannia would absolutely be happening in your high street. 
It was a dramatic time in music. Biggie got shot and Brian Harvey kicked out of E17. And in football, it was a time that redefined the Premiership. A season that began with Man United once more champions, but elsewhere was all change. Big foreign stars arriving, Viali, Zola, Ravanelli, big English stars like Alan Shearer on the move. And arriving from the east, a new playmate for Sir Alex by the name of Arsene Wenger. Arsene Wenger's been in Japan for a year. He doesn't know anything about English football. He's unaware of the demands of our game. Uh, he's at a, well, the use of a big club, Arsenal. Maybe next year he could be in the same situation. And I wonder what his story will be then. All right, this is getting exciting now. The Premier League really stepping up a level with big-name imports, especially James from Italy. Yeah, I do think this is a really transformative year uh, for the Premier League because um, so many of the players that you just mentioned and also Wenger seem to take uh, the standard of competition in the Premier League to a high level, at least in terms of the professionalism expected from players um, at training grounds and in games. Um, you, know, you only have to listen to some of the imports who came to play for Newcastle, both this season and before, talking about those kind of bus journeys to away games and having fish and chips um, and a pint. Um, and, you know, Frank LeBeouf and Viali, um, talk about after playing golf with the Chelsea lads, they wouldn't, you know, sort of be on the beers afterwards in the clubhouse. Um, and I, I still find it striking looking at that Ravinelli season for for Middlesbrough as well, where he just absolutely tears it up. I think in some respects, just by dint of being fitter, better prepared, having come from a regimen in Serie A and a different standard in Serie A, which did enable um, some of these players like Viali, like Zola, who... I think Ravinelli was the youngest one at 29. Um, the others were already into their 30s and um, and yet were able to have an influence, um, not only on the pitch, but off it as well. And you know, I don't think there's any bigger exemplar of that or symbol of it in, in Premier League history than Wenger in terms of the changes he brought in, you know, sort of eating broccoli, stretching before training and after training. This seems to be when... I suppose Premier League football becomes more continental, more cosmopolitan and kind of grows up out of the end of the kind of first division transition into Premier League, if you know what I mean. All right. Football with broccoli. <laughs> the season began with a flourish. And Beckham saw Sullivan off his line. Oh, that is absolutely phenomenal. David Beckham there pinging one in from the halfway line on opening day at Selhurst Park and United were off like a train beginning a nine-game unbeaten start beyond Beckham and the uh, 92ers uh, United had also signed a Norwegian player named Oli Gunnar Solskjaer for about 1.5 million and he would certainly make his mark scoring just six minutes into his debut as a substitute to get a point against Blackburn and ending up that season ahead of Eric Cantona and Andy Cole as United's top scorer, despite mostly starting off the bench. Yeah, I think that was... Andy Cole was really the full guy for, for Solskjaer in, in, in this season. Cole didn't start a, a league game until February of this year. And, and we'll come on to Cantona and what happened at the end of the season. But but you wonder if, if Cantona had stuck around, maybe that would have been the end for Cole at United, presuming that he wouldn't have been happy with his role for, for most of this season. But he ended up staying there till 2001. I think the curious thing about Solskjaer is... You look at some of the other clubs that were interested in him prior to United, and it's Hamburg or Cagliari, um, <laughs> which you know you're looking at sort of the English English champions um, 
yeah, should they be shopping at you know more exclusive, more expensive places? It is a reminder that the Premier League couldn't compete really at that time, even the top clubs with with City and some of the the Spanish giants. But also, kind of, it it just felt like a bit of a punt from you from United. Even when you look at some of Solskjaer's his goal per game average at at Molde, it's not extraordinary. It's not something that leaps so much off the page in the way that, say, Erling Haaland has done in recent times, where you think he has to go immediately to Germany or something like that. But um, yeah, what a figure in United's history he would become. And you, you kind of feel like that the Solskjaer signing was as a result of, of a sustained period of scouting of the player, whereas one of the other players they brought in in this summer, Karol Poborski, was basically off the back of a decent Euro 96, which was kind of a theme of this season as well. And obviously Solskjaer ended up doing a lot better than Poborski did at United. Some great long-haired uh, imports coming in, uh, as well as Viali James, you know, if you want to have the bald community represented there, but Patrick Berger mm. as well coming in off, no. the, uh, yep. off the back of that uh, Czech side, winning Euro, uh, getting to the final Euro 96. Good time for hair bands and long hair. Well, United had been off to a fine start, but things began to come apart for them in October when they went to Newcastle, their usual whipping boys, determined to put them in their place again, but instead lost 5 0. There they are. Looking for number five with Philippe Albert. Oh! Absolutely glorious! Shell shocked. United then stumbled down to the south coast and probably lost 6 3 at Saints with another great Latisse Classic in there. By the time that Chelsea came to Old Trafford in the next match and won 2 1, well, it was a full blown crisis. They did beat Arsenal next up, but as November came to an end, it was Arsenal who were top of the Premier League, ahead of Newcastle and Liverpool. Fourth, were Wimbledon, United, were nowhere to be seen. At this point, it looked like we had an absolutely phenomenal title race on, Daniel. Yeah, we did. Um, Manchester United had not really got going despite the early start to the season. And it, it looked like Arsene Wenger's impact at Arsenal was, was not just going to be instantaneous off the pitch, but also on it. Arsenal started to play different football. They had these kind of new players, but it was also, you could tell just watching them that, that the players like Tony Adams, Lee Dixon, Nigel Winterburn had a bit sort of pep in their step. This was immediate proof of, of the Wenger effect. Mm. Those vitamin injections that Ian Wright was talking about on uh, Match of the Day or Match of Their Day a few weeks ago. <laughs> Ian Wright, who uh, during this season, just before Wenger came in, in September, was asked post-match after, after they played Sheffield Wednesday at Highbury, what do you think about the appointment of the new manager, Arsene Wenger? And he replied, who? Jokingly, um, which was kind of what everybody did, but not jokingly at the time, I seem to recall. Among the new additions that Arsene Wenger brought, Patrick Vieira, who came just before him in August, and Nicholas Anelka, who joined in January. The Gunners with a very fine debut season for Arsene Wenger on the Gunners bench, finishing in third. Newcastle, meanwhile, who'd responded to the previous year's disappointment by bringing Alan Shearer back home to the delight of 15,000 supporters who turned up to welcome him back, were up to their usual tricks doing spurs, a famously 7-1, and as we mentioned, absolutely destroying Man United at St James's Park. But this all came to an abrupt halt when in January of that season, Kevin Keegan walked out. Although in hindsight, it feels like an incredible shock. Newcastle were very much on the way down from that point. There was a kind of feeling that Keegan had 
done his bit, not least by signing Alan Shearer. I think it's probably true that Shearer wanted to join Newcastle, but he was convinced by the, the Keegan connection. They'd gone seven games without a win. Everything was starting to fall apart. I think the media was, was very much suspicious that Newcastle had missed their chance. And as we've said, in a season in which there was no real standout team, Newcastle were, kind of fell apart. They were, they were brilliant in those, those single matches, but they were pretty poor in terms of consistency, which is probably the defining image of Kevin Keegan as a manager. There's a, a kind of a nice indicator for the, for the transition from the first division into the Premier League, which, um, which James mentioned earlier in, in the kind of Keegan and Wenger thing, because you've got that up and at them, we'll score four if you score three approach from Keegan, which was going out of fashion and, and Wenger, the, the philosopher coming in, to replace him, and you know Keegan did come back with, with Man City, and then again with Newcastle, but with very diminished returns. Based on these few seasons that we've been talking about in recent weeks, when he's actually, you know, quite a key contributor to the early years of the Premier League in a way that maybe we don't think of too much um, looking back on it. Well, the new year got underway in this 96-97 season with one team five points clear in the first place and it was Liverpool with Roy Evans in charge with Robbie Fowler banging in the goals with another 4-3 over the Magpies under their belts. They were, stop me if you've heard this one before, set to end their long wait for a top division title. Well, it wasn't that long then. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. What went wrong though? How did they go from five points clear at the turn of the year, to missing out? I mean, two things. Firstly, I don't think Roy Evans was as good enough a manager. I think he was popular in the dressing room, but maybe didn't quite have that discipline to manage the squad as he was. He would have liked, or Liverpool would have liked, and certainly that subsequent Liverpool managers had. They took 16 points from the last 12 league games, which is pitiful given that they only finished seven points behind Manchester United. And the other scapegoat and probably the more significant scapegoat was David James who made a series of clangers and that's when we that's when the Clamity James nickname was established um Liverpool were it was a, a very strange season they only lost two games by more than a single goal all season but just in those kind of crux moments of crux matches either James let them down or they just didn't quite get it over the line and I think that's the one season if you speak to any Liverpool player and supporter across that era that's the one season that they said this was our chance to end the as James says at the time kind of mini drought but you just felt that missing out that season they weren't going to get that good chance again. Well, one of the two games that they lost by more than a single goal margin was the absolutely crucial game in the title race. When United visited Anfield in April, United at the time were two points clear. A win for Liverpool would have put them back on top with three games to go, but they ended up losing 3-1 and no question there who the culprit was. That's a great skill from Gary Neville. Cole will challenge James. Oh, David James, another catastrophe. A gift for Andy Cole. Mark Wright saying afterwards that was the season we should have won the title and we all know that. David James dropped a few clangers and I remember them because in certain games he didn't have anything to do then all of a sudden he thinks he's got to be involved in the game he would come rushing out and all of a sudden you'd be 1-0 down. Happy days. I'm sure Mark Wright didn't make any mistakes in that season whatsoever. It was all it was all David James. Well, Mark Wright is actually in the PFA Team of the Year that season with Stigging a Bjornaby as well. It's a... Uh, in fact, Stig was the only foreign player, well, with Roy Keane, who was in that uh, that eleven. Even even though we've discussed all those 
magnificent imports. Clearly, the the PFA was was still very much protecting its own um, when you know Janino, who we'll get to, was the one getting all the plaudits elsewhere. Mm. We'll come on to Middlesbrough and their quite extraordinary season very, very shortly. But beyond them, what other memories do you have of, of 96, 97? Trevor Sinclair's overhead kick, perhaps, in the FA Cup. Uh, Mark Bosnich doing a Wayne Hennessy. Paul Dickov having seven managers in a single season. That's got to be a record. <laughs> yeah, one of them for 33 days uh, in Steve Koppel, who uh, was appointed Man City manager and quickly uh, left the post because of stress. But if you're talking FA Cup, James, you've got to say Chesterfield with a, with a story of the season, getting to the semi-finals, that 3-3 draw they had with Borough, Old Trafford, with um, Sean Dyche hammering a penalty straight down the middle, one of their goal scorers that day. Magnificent. I suppose another thing, James, which again just shows what a transformative year this was with precursors to, to the kind of future, was what happened at Coventry when big Ron Atkinson um, was promoted to director of football. Uh, I mean, that that just wasn't something that existed in the English game um, at the time. And for many years to come, there was all the suspicion around that, that role, which is only now sort of easing. And Big Ron was, was happy to do it as long as Gordon Strachan was, you know, sort of doing the business for, for Coventry from November from the, from the dugout. We get this at the very start of the season with, with um, Kenny Dalglish as, as the director of football at Blackburn and lo and behold, by September he's gone and, and Sky are Vox popping fans outside the stadium <laughs> and the consensus is, yeah, he, he's been on the golf course rather than in the boardroom. So it's uh, it was a token <laughs> position. Mm. Other standout memories from this campaign included Cantona's goal and celebration against Sunderland and what was, of course, his swan song uh, in football. Mark Davidson saying, was that celebration against Sunderland the coolest ever? Also, Paolo Wanchop's goal at Old Trafford was one of the goals of the season. Edges Shaik also saying uh, this was the season when Fenjorn Eriksson signed a contract to become Blackburn Rovers manager, then decided not to. What could have been? Um, just on cool celebrations, that Cantona won probably the winner, but but there was one from this season at Roker Park. Dennis Burkamp scored an amazing goal for Arsenal against Sunderland in the FA Cup. A couple of really nice touches and then floats a chip from the edge of the box over the keeper and walks away with his hand over his mouth and his teammates join him in copying it as if to say, there's no point in saying anything about this goal. It was so good. And it's quite funny watching the teammates do it because Paul Merson, you can just see his laughter breaking through um, the hand covering his mouth that, wow, this guy's really, really good at football. So that was that was quite a cool one. Again, well. sets a trend of footballers covering their mouths and talking to each other, which we'd see, you know, in, 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 in a decade to come. You know, it's... <laughs> It's it's quite something this season, but yeah, in terms of celebrations, this was uh, we'll we'll get to Ravinelli, but he had a great celebration, which I used to sort of uh, mimic in the uh, in the schoolyard. And then there was even before this, I think it was before this season, because Sharp, I think Lee Sharp moves to Leeds United this year, doesn't he? There was mm. the Sharpie Shuffle. I mean, come on, yeah, yeah. We touched on this, but we, we were as brief as possible on on, on that one. It was remarkable. George Graham was back in this season after serving his ban over the bungs. He took charge at Leeds, coincidentally, scoring just 28 goals all season. No team has ever scored fewer goals and, and managed to stay up in the Premier League. Yeah, this this is remarkably, despite everything we know about George Graham's heritage as a football manager, this is arguably peak George Graham. Um, 
20 clean sheets and Leeds scored 28 goals, but they'd scored five of them in the four games before he got there. So they scored 23 goals in 33 league games, including nine nil nils, which is absolutely remarkable. I mean, as you say, the only team to have scored so few goals and stayed up, but they didn't just stay up. They finished 11th. Didn't have Netflix back then, but we did have Premier Passions on BBC One detailing uh, Sunderland's battle against relegation with actual swearing. That's It's not about tactics and them being great players. It's about which they've got more on the day. So get on with it. I remember watching it. And I also remember it being funny because at the time I was reasonably, reasonably young. I was about nine or ten years old. And I remember walking out of the city ground. We used to walk past or walk with the away fans and there'd be a, quite a lot of effing and jeffing. And I remember my mum saying to me, they only swear because they, they, they're they not clever enough to think of any other words. And I remember, <laughs> think, I remember thinking that, watching Peter Reid and thinking, well, he seems to be doing all right with it. So it, it clearly can't be just that. Other highlights of what was an extraordinary season included Southampton boss Graham Souness unveiling Saints' latest star, the previously unknown Ali Dyer, who had arrived on the apparent recommendation of AC Milan's George Weah. Of all the Premier League stories, Matt, Ali Dyer in his 53 minutes, was it, for Saints, is one of the most curious. Yeah, it's something that Graham Souness has, has never been um, been able to shake off either. It's It's... It's it's like something from a kind of prank show of the early noughties. You know, let's see if we can get host of show into a Premier League football match. And, and somehow he managed it. And uh quote from Matt Letissier, he ran around on the pitch like Bambi on ice. It was embarrassing to watch. So he hadn't been, he was supposedly contacted, Graham Souness, by George Ware. And Ali Dyer was George Ware's cousin, only he wasn't the cousin and it wasn't George Ware on the phone. But even... Watching Ali Dyer in training didn't alert anyone at Southampton to this. And he comes on in a game and lasts a full, what, over 50 minutes before he's taken yeah, off again. The supposed George Weah had told um, Souness that, that Dyer had played for Paris Saint-Germain and was capped 13 times by his country, where actually he played once for Blythe Spartans. So not quite the same. No, Not great scouting at Southampton, I would suggest, at that time. My favourite uh, niche point about the Ali Dyer signing is that Graham Souness was the reigning Premier League manager of the month at the time, which doesn't say an awful lot for the standard of that competition. I'm Jose Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Being on the front cover of Rolling Stone magazine? Special. Winning the daily jackpot on Paddy Power Games? Not special. Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators. Available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com. 18 plus begambleware.org. You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. You've mentioned on various occasions, James, Middlesbrough and Ravanelli. Ravanelli, who made an extraordinary impression on his debut at the Riverside, remains the only man to score a hat-trick on his Premier League debut. Trying to burst through. Ravanelli. Ravanelli, yes! It's a hat-trick! Finished that season with 31 goals in all competition. But what an, what an incredible season it was. 
For Middlesbrough, they had Ravanelli. Emerson was there, Juninho, of course. They added mid-season Gianluca Festa. They reached two cup finals and they still managed to get relegated. Yeah, uh, Ravanelli was talking about this only a couple of weeks ago and he said that, you know, we were great going forward. Um, you've mentioned some of the names on that team, but at the back, we were atrocious. They conceded 60 goals in the league that season, um, even though they, I think they had the sixth best attack. Um, and what a roller coaster of a year. I mean, I still... I think we've been waiting in the Premier League to see uh, clubs of Middlesbrough's size go out and be able to attract this calibre of player, um, be it Ravinelli uh, in his late 20s, be it Juninho uh, from Sao Paulo. Um, and yet we we still haven't really seen it. And this was at a time when the Premier League wasn't as rich. People weren't flocking to go and play the Premier League unless they were towards the ends of their careers. It's a staggering achievement for Middlesbrough to actually bring in um, that cluster of, uh, of foreign players. And Ravinelli, I mean, you talked about that hat-trick on the opening day against Liverpool. Um, he scored another one, I think, against Derby. Um, he scored four in one game, I think, in the League Cup against Hereford. I mean, he, he it was a surprise actually going back and, and, and seeing that he wasn't the top scorer in the league because I can't... I remember his impact being you know, just extraordinary. He should have been playing for one of the top sides. He should have been signed for United instead of Solskjaer. Or you, know, you could say that, but for the sentimental reasons for Newcastle signing Shearer, he would have, he would have been much more able to and, and should have been on their radar as a player that they, they, they looked at and thought, wow, this guy can actually help us win a league title, win a trophy. And yeah, to, to get to two cup finals, amazing. Yeah, amazingly bittersweet. They must have felt like a top team, the fans at, at, at the Riverside, going to two cup finals and losing both and getting relegated. They even had Bob Mortimer doing their cup final song. Cover of Chris Rear's Let's Dance, although Chelsea hit back, Matt, with their own celebrity co-author, Suggs. You can still hear Blue Day around Stamford Bridge uh, fairly often. I quite like it, actually. It's got the Chelsea, Chelsea bit in it, which makes it quite chantable. Um, it's not right. the worst FA Cup final song. It's not written by Chris Rea. That's true, yeah, yeah. Um, mm. I remember reading an interview with Bob Mortimer about this FA Cup final and talking about how he'd been, you know, in, in the corporate bit afterwards and and the players were there kind of having a drink, drowning their sorrows. And he noticed Emerson crouched behind a plant in the corner singing I Believe I Can Fly softly to himself. And he, and he thought that kind of sums up the season in a way. I think this, is, this season, if I was going to commission a docuseries or a, a film as a nostalgia of any team's Premier League season, it would be Middlesbrough 96-97. It, it had everything, including abject farce. So the relegation, which I think is what you're referring to there, which came about because they didn't turn up for a game with Blackburn. Yeah, they had 12 players who were not sick or injured. A, a, a flu virus had gone through the club. Three of those, they said... Were they doing a notcherino? I don't think they were. Um, three of the fit players were goalkeepers, which is incredibly unlucky, but does show the value of wearing gloves. 
Um, but they, yeah, they, so they, they told the Premier League the day before the game that they couldn't fulfill the fixture. The remarkable thing in hindsight is they didn't get an okay from the Premier League. They just simply didn't turn up, which is absolutely remarkable. I mean, if they'd have gone on with the three goalkeepers playing up front and lost 10-0, they would have stayed up. But obviously they were docked points for not turning up and that ultimately sealed the relegation. Extraordinary, yeah. Minus three points they were handed in January and, and that was enough to take them down on the final day. And and Brian Robson is obviously hugely culpable and I wonder, obviously, money was probably the main motivating factor for Ravinelli signing there, but the name Brian Robson is a relatively big one and that may may have played a part in, in attracting the kind of players that, that Middlesbrough did. But for him to say... <laughs> wonderfully 90s quote that you wouldn't get away with today he basically said if the Premier League had set rules about this I would have obeyed them it would have been simple I'd have turned out the laundry ladies on the day and we'd have lost the game Um, but for him to say yeah we're not playing the game we're not going is an extraordinarily bad move to make but for nobody above him because presumably he told the chairman the owner the directors this is what we're planning on doing for none of those people to say this isn't a very good idea I don't think we should do that it seems bizarre I mean for the manager to have that much power is strange in and of itself but for nobody to to question that decision seems extraordinary if I was an academy player at the the club in 1996-97 as well I wouldn't feel hugely buoyed by the news that he would rather the laundry ladies have played than than them (laughs) they might have been extremely good you know, women's football wasn't such a big thing back then, but who Good at keeping clean sheets, definitely. Way <laughs> There is no last day miracle for Middlesbrough. The draw, not enough. And next Saturday's FA Cup finalists will spend next season in Division 1, desperate for all at the club. Um, it's a bit difficult to take, but, you know, certainly with uh, what's happened this year in terms of... Um, the press situation, you know, the flight we've taken, it would have been nice to have uh, come out of it at the last last hurdle, but not to be. Wonderful vignette there from uh, Nigel Pearson, skipper, who gives the post-match interview on the on the day, you know, amid the scenes of misery there at Middlesbrough. Also going down that year were Sunderland, Natch and Forest. Hang on, Forest finished third in 95, Matt, Daniel. But they were bottom in 97. How did that happen? Well, they'd had the, the memorable campaign in Europe the year before, but but what they'd failed to do, after they finished third and they sold Stan Collymore, they didn't replace him with somebody of comparable quality. Instead, they, they spent the money on, on bringing in quantity. And so then you end up with an ageing Dean Saunders and, and Kevin Campbell up front, not capable of, of getting the same... Uh, number of goals, but but also they burned through managers. Once once Frank Clark left, they they appointed Stuart Pearce as, as player manager, uh, got manager of the month for January, won his first game against Arsenal despite having picked a team the night before that didn't contain a goalkeeper. Um, his wife pointed that out to him when he showed her the team in, in a kind of early signifier of how his managerial career would go. And then uh, Dave Bassett took over, and and by that point in March it was too late. Forest were effectively down by that point, although they would roar straight back up the next season, we should point out. On to the title itself. And what an emphatic title-winning campaign this was, Daniel, from Man United. Yeah, it's a complete transition season for Manchester United. It's it's the first year in which the class of 92 are um, all regulars in the team. 
Um, it's an odd season for United because they have injuries and selection issues, which means that only two outfield players start more than 30 league games, which is Beckham and Cantona. Um, and obviously at the end of it, having inspired them to win the title, Cantona retires and mm. basically says, well, I was on the understanding. I stayed at the club because you wanted me to bring through the class of 92. I did that. They're now in the team. Beckham's just one young player of the year. We've won the league. I've kind of done all I can in a very Cantona-esque move. Keegan-esque as well, in mm. some senses. When I said it was an emphatic win, I mean, the numbers aren't particularly impressive. Some would say this was the worst title-winning campaign of the entire Premier League's history because they managed to achieve first place with only 75 points. To put that in some sort of context, Arsenal, with 75 points in 2017, only finished fifth. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that, that does speak volumes about the um, warped competition within the Premier League and the creation of a number of mini-leagues within it. Um, but yeah, they were they were dismal for periods. I think they basically, they, they won the title with a run of five straight league wins in January and February that took them from third to first. And they scored, I think, five goals in those five games in the last latter stages of the match. Now, the, the term Fergie time had already been established with, with Steve Bruce before that, but this was very much United just going harder, faster, longer and ultimately better at the end of it. Yeah, and you mentioned David Beckham, Young Player of the Year, significant year for him too um, because he was introduced to his wife through football and the now defunct 90 Minutes Football magazine. Um, I'm not sure if anybody remembers this. They had the Spice Girls on the front cover of their Christmas issue, all in kits of the teams that they um, allegedly supported. Mel C with some some fairly pertinent quotes on, on Roy Evans' tactical shortcomings. Um, Mel B leads... Uh, Emma, Baby, Spurs, Jerry, Watford and Victoria was in a Man United shirt because her manager, their manager, Simon Fuller, supported them. Um, she was shown pictures of players by the, the journalist who interviewed them, uh, who's written a blog about it, or she did, she did a few years ago, Juliet Wills, her name is. Um, she said, I'll show you some pictures of footballers and if you like the look of any of them, let me know. I'll put it in the mag. Lo and behold, she shows Victoria a picture of David Beckham. Oh my God, she said. Who's he? It's David Beckham, I told her. He's proper fit now. He plays for Man United. You could go up to a game with Mel C and introduce yourself in the players' bar. He's so handsome, she squealed, her face lighting up in excitement. I'm going to do that, then ask him out for dinner. That's a lovely story. And all these years later, they're still together, man. Mm, yeah. Marvellous. Already. Well, uh, Cantona made two films in 1998. Oh, yeah? He made Elizabeth with Kate Blanchett. Right. And then he was the lead in a uh, French film called Mookie, uh, where far away from their native France, two men are in trouble in a Mexican town. One is a gentle missionary monk, Brother Benoit. That's not Cantona. The other is a tough, stubborn boxer named Antoine Capella. That is Eric Cantona. Uh, Brother Benoit has saved a chimp he calls Muki, and who has become his pet. But the trouble is that it is a talking monkey, which oh. is the reason why a group of scientists want to take it away from him. Uh, as for Capella, he has refused to lose a rigged fight, and now a gang of bad men are after him to punish him. When the two men are forced to leave the town, they decide to travel together to Mexico. The road will be long and eventful. Wow. It sounds like, it sounds like a film written by a, a class of six-year-olds who each have to do a line <laughs> separately and secretly. <laughs> I'm, I'm, am I the only out. person who's deeply intrigued by that pitch? 
<laughs> why didn't you why didn't you do this in flicks and kicks? That that feature could still be running now if we just Absolutely. did it on the Canton well, Reeve. I mean <laughs> there's months to go, so who knows, eh? Mookie, you say. We'll keep an eye out for that one. Of course this season it wasn't just about the title because second place had a new relevance. Got you into the Champions League, James. Champions League, yes. Those pesky Super League campaigners. Mm. And wanting to take it away from what it really is and should be about, which is a, a Champions League, not a runners-up right. league. Yeah. But this was um, this was also the year um, that United got to the semi-finals, kind of broke through their glass ceiling, wasn't it? Against uh, getting to to play against Dortmund, as we spoke about on our uh, Champions League throwback show a few weeks ago. That's true. It was Newcastle who claimed that second Champions League spot, finishing alongside Arsenal and Liverpool seven points adrift of United, but taking the Champions League place on goal difference thanks to a 10-match unbeaten run at the end of the season under Kenny Daglish, who'd come in for Kevin Keegan. All right, then. The only other thing to mention, we should really, was the FA Cup. Hughes making an angle run ahead of him and opened up some space to... And a goal! Oh, fantastic start! Roberto Di Matteo! Matt, happy times. Um, happy times then, yeah. It was um, it's a really significant season in the history of Chelsea, this one, for, for the reason you've just mentioned, but more pertinently in October, the, the death of Matthew Harding, the, um, the club director who, who died along with four other people in a helicopter crash coming back from a League Cup tie at, at Bolton. He put more than £25 million in, into Chelsea during his time as a, as a director. And the, the North Stand, which was being redeveloped at the time, uh, is, is known as the Matthew Harding Stand now. Um, obviously, that's that's one of the worst events in club history. But then ended the season with the FA Cup, only the second time Chelsea had ever won it. First English trophy to be won by a foreign manager as well, um, Rude Hullet. Uh, Di Matteo, you mentioned, quickest FA Cup final goal at the time. Louis Saha broke that record in... 2009. Um, it was also the first time Chelsea had ever won the FA Cup at Wembley because in 1970 uh, they won it after a replay that game wasn't played at Wembley. So yeah, kind of kick-started Chelsea's, Chelsea's sort of ascent into a, a, a club challenging for trophies, if not league titles around this kind of time. Any other last thoughts on the 96-97 season? So I've always thought that Alan Shearer, he's always struck me as you know not the most fun-loving kind of guy. And yet I was watching one of those Instagram lives last night where Fabio Cannavaro called up Faustino Aspria on his ranch in Colombia, uh, where among showing Fabio one of his six or seven horses, um, he, he told a few anecdotes. And he said that the worst prank ever played on him was by Alan Shearer. And it was uh, in a hotel in London before Newcastle were due to play Arsenal at Highbury. And Tino was uh, on his own in his room uh, on the phone to his girlfriend at the time. Uh, I mean, I think he had several girlfriends at the time, but it was his significant other then. And he heard like some scratching on the door and he's a bit freaked out, but he keeps talking to his his girlfriend. And then there's a knock at the door and uh, he gets up and he goes to like look through the peephole. And at that stage, someone, and it turns out to be Alan Shearer, uh, basically turns the fire extinguisher and sprays him with the fire extinguisher through the peephole into Faustino Espria's eye, which then swells up. And he has to then play the next game, uh, the next day against Arsenal with this bulging eye, um, which, you know, he said it's, it's never been the same since. So That's extraordinary. So there was no glass in the kind of spy Well, hole. I think... I think what he was kind of suggesting was that that scratching that had been going on was someone 
somehow removing the 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 people ah. but how he was able to do that from the outside i don't know um but yeah and then to fire sure. a fi- well to spray a fire extinguisher through that can you imagine the kind of velocity it's coming at your eye i mean he's he's lucky still to be seeing tino wow what a story james horn Gossel. and a fitting place to put the lid on 96 97 fabulously entertaining 97, 98 was pretty interesting too, as we'll be discovering in a week's time. Matt, you'll be back for that. Yeah, looking forward to it. Mm, Daniel Story will be along as well. But before that, Daniel, we'll catch up with you in Thursday's edition for the first leg of your semi-final with Alvaro Romeo. Thursday's show won't only be that, though. We'll also be James doing Champions League retro stuff. Which season are we up to now? 2000-2001. A Space Odyssey. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing all about that. That pretty much wraps it up for today's show. Listener, many thanks for your company. We'll be back Thursday, so looking forward to speaking to you then for now. From all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter. And make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Muddy Knees Media.